0: The photo shows a man standing in a pool, slim, wearing a piece of pool equipment like a top hat. It sums up Ronald Trimboli in one image spontaneous, playful, funny, and charming. But Ronald Trimboli could also be described as a small time hustler. Rumored to be chronically unfaithful until settling down for his last marriage, Ronald was married multiple times, memorably proposing to his third wife at the wedding to his second wife. Ronald Trimboli was in and out of work, sometimes because he literally chose to be in and out of work, showing up whenever he felt like it. Perennially short of money, it was not unusual or shocking for Ronald to use someone else's credit card without their knowledge. And if he asked to borrow money, it was commonly known his promise to repay was unlikely to be fulfilled. It speaks to his incredible charm and warmth that even with all of this, everyone who knew him seemed to love Ronald Trimboli. It was fun to be around him and when he was in the kitchen, he was a force to be reckoned with. To say Ronald Tremboli was a complex character is putting it mildly. Ronald would
1: be painted in the trials to come as a dangerous person, but Ronald's daughter, Lisa, and her husband, Mark, who knew Ronald as well as anyone, could not reconcile that portrayal with the man himself. Of course, that's not to say Ronald was a perfect saint.
2: I mean, he's dangerous if you're a blonde, you have a car and you have a credit card with available credit. I think of him as a small-time con. I don't I don't see any violence.
3: He had champagne taste and a beer pocket. Um, he, you know, enjoyed the holidays. He I would tell people, you know, if you lived in his neighborhood, he was going to cook dinner or have a barbecue and invite the whole neighborhood. Well,
2: he would Spend the money. He'd use water bill money, electric bill money, (laughs) whatever he needed to buy enough food for everybody to eat.
3: Yeah, no, he wasn't a violent guy at all. I mean, got arrested for a DWI, got arrested for a check that uh, he wrote for some tires for his car, and then it bounced. Um, My grandmother said she paid it. But But he wasn't violent. He didn't
2: have any violent
1: tendencies. Ronald, it turned out, actually had an aversion to blood, according to Mark and Lisa.
2: One thing that's always funny, she tells the story. This is what's funny about a triple murder. And if he did it, we swear to God, he would be there, passed out cold when the bodies were found because of his reaction to blood
3: my dad people don't know well the police didn't know this but i was riding a bike and i put my sister up on the the handlebars and i was going down the hill i put on the brakes and my sister went flying off the handlebars and when she fell she had her front teeth on the her bottom lip so when she hit whatever she hit the ground her bottom lip her teeth just broke open that bottom lip so she is bleeding. She is completely covered in blood all over her chest. And I am running with her back home. And as I walk in the door, my dad, and I'm screaming, mom, dad. And this is in, uh, when my parents were together. Um, and I come walking in and my dad sees her and he passed out cold, like passed out. And then my mom passed out. So that was a really funny story because both of my parents could not handle the sight of blood.
1: Ronald was also, frankly, a bit goofy. He wasn't the type of person you would think could execute a meticulous plot. For instance...
3: Coming to Texas, I go to Dr. Varga, the same doctor that my dad is taking, you know, going to and also had taken his son to at the time of the, the murders. And Lucy his uh, nurse and secretary, as I'm there for a doctor visit, starts telling me, so you're Ron's daughter. And I'm like, yep. He goes, so you're the oldest guest. She goes, your dad, your dad is such a character. She goes, you know, one time he came in here and he had cut the tip of his finger. And she goes, and I handed him a cup. And she goes, and I walked out of the room and I, came, and I came back in and your dad is foaming from the mouth and he's looking at me, I'm looking at him and he's at the same time saying, what was in that water? And she's like, Ron, you weren't supposed to drink it. You were supposed to put your finger in it. It was peroxide. <laughs> so she was like, he was so nervous and upset. Like he couldn't deal with that cut. Like it, he thought she was giving him a glass of water, but she was giving him a cup of peroxide to put his finger in it, so he's just a character.
1: As I spent time with Mark and Lisa in Texas, a fountain of stories about Ronald just naturally spilled out. So much so, I had to start capturing them on the fly, while driving, while walking, not to lose any of them. Stories like that one time.
3: So, um, my sister and I visit from New Jersey to Texas cause we're living in New Jersey. He's living in Texas. He's living in Dallas. My grandparents are living in Arlington and he picks us up from our grandparents house and takes us to an apartment complex. I don't know if he lives there. I don't even remember ever going into an apartment, but we're swimming in the pool. Okay. And I guess he's talking to the manager. Okay, of maybe getting an apartment there, but probably not. And so he says, I'll be right back, right? And so he leaves my sister and I at the pool. (laughs) And I would say, if I can't be exact, but I'm going to guess, it felt like at least a couple hours. Okay, so when he showed up, I was so mad at him. I pushed him in the pool. I mean, I just pushed him in the pool and you know, he threw and he laughed. He, you know, he wasn't mad. And I'm like, really? Really dad, you left us to, he goes, her name was Tish. <laughs> t- I'm like, I don't care what her name was, you know? <laughs> and, he, and then it was over with. I think at the time my age, because we were kind of, you know, my sister, I have to say I had to be 12 or 13, yeah, you know. um, My sister had to be, if I was 12, she was 8, if I was 13, she was 9, and um, it was just, he just did that crazy stuff.
1: Or that one time.
3: My grandmother specifically told him not to take us horseback riding because of my allergies. So what does he do? He was helping a, a friend, his ranch. So we went horseback riding. And my dad was character on that one too. He's from New York. What does he know about horses, right? And um, not saying that he doesn't know about horses, but taking care of them and uh, wrangling them. <laughs> what does he know about that? So he was funny because then he said, he he goes, okay, you girls stay right here. I gotta go get that horse. But you see that one over there? He doesn't like me. He goes, so he might chase me. Don't be scared, you know? I said, okay. So he did, he got in there. And then all of a sudden I saw my dad hoofing it. (laughs) This horse was coming. And my dad is laughing and he turns around and he goes, hi, you didn't get me, you know? And then he got the other horse and he put us on it. And, you know, we, he took, you know, held on to the horse and walked us, you know, with the horse. And of course we're girls, we love it. You know, this is so much fun. And then he goes, um, okay, Lisa, go in the trailer and take a shower so, you know, grandma doesn't get mad at me for taking you. Well, my asthma was very severe, so it didn't matter. It was already kicking in, and I didn't want to tell him because I didn't want to hurt his feelings, you know? So the whole way I'm monitoring it, and the next thing we get home, and I don't say anything, and I'm trying to keep it from getting worse, and then I have to wake up my grandparents and tell them that um, my asthma kicked in. And the first thing my grandmother said, "Did your father take you horseback riding?"
1: Or that other time.
3: And I heard my grandmother talking to somebody on the phone that was saying her the way she was responding to it is, you know, "Oh, I don't know where he is. As soon as I can, you know, get a hold of him, of course I will let him know. I appreciate, you know, that you're not going to." Um, Press charges. I understand. As soon as I can get a hold of him, I will uh, have him get in contact with you. So when she hung up the phone, I kind of knew it was about my dad. And as she walked into the dining area, into the living room, I said, Grandma, is that about dad? And she said, Your father. Your father. And I said, oh boy, what's what's going on? And she proceeded to tell me that, you know, he left with this woman's credit card and her car. That she had given him the credit card and the car to go do something, get something for them, and he hasn't returned. And that she would like those two items back from him, and she doesn't want to press charges against him. I, I don't know, I don't know if, she, all the stuff, you know, he brought it back or she picked it up or they met and he gave it. All I know is that it just was over and done with.
2: This was after very,
3: what would you say? Like very charismatic. Right? Is that the word? Your dad? Yeah, very charismatic. But that that was the moment that clicked for me (laughs) that being his daughter, uh Being his daughter was going to be a challenge. But when he met D.C., honestly, it all slowed down. It all came to a nice halt.
1: There was a clear sense from everyone I talked to that D.C. was a stabilizing force for Ronald. D.C. was Ronald's wife when he got arrested, as we mentioned last time. But their courtship, as remembered by Lisa, was characteristic of Ronald Tromboli's personality because part of it happened while he was getting married to another woman, Ron's previous wife.
3: D.C. and my dad worked together and had a good friendship. And in the uh, limo, when my dad pulls up in the limo, he sees D.C. and he's like, you know, pulling her, telling her, please marry me, marry me, you marry me. And and she's like, Ron, get off me. You're crazy, you know? And uh, she said he was just hilarious. Like She was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm getting married. I don't want to get married. Don't make me get married. Somebody stop this. (laughs) You know, he was just awful. And uh, my grandfather told me that he had to uh, go get my dad out of the bar to uh, come to his own wedding.
1: I asked D.C. about this.
4: Um, Lisa had told me that... uh at his wedding to his previous wife he at some point
1: said to you like hey i should have married you or let's get married or something
5: like uh, that yeah i mean that was it's hard to describe our relationship we liked each other we worked with each other we flirted and you know all the, all the time i can say yes he did he said that he wished that he would we had gotten married uh, he chased me for a year before we got together and it, when, when he got married I was happy for him but jealous you know, because it could have been him and I mm-hmm. I mean Ron had a joke or something to say about everything you know, he didn't want bad things at work he didn't like the, all that camaraderie He he, had, he he kept that store going constantly, he entertained our customers I mean it was a it was a show every day every night when he was at work throwing those pizzas we didn't roll them out he threw them and people yelled and screamed and toasted him and yeah it was fun he was a fun person to be around he was our entertainer at work he was my entertainer at home you know i just don't know of anybody that that i could give you a name that disliked him his mouth got him in trouble that was his worst enemy, was his mouth.
1: This is how Bill Lane, Ronald's defense attorney for his third trial, felt about Ronald's tendency to be his own worst enemy.
6: My name is Bill Lane and I was the lead uh, attorney on the last case that was tried. He, he was, but he was, he was a bit of a uh, boastful flim-flam flim flam guy, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, New York guy that, you know, talked every bit the New York language and, uh, he was just, he was colorful. He really was. Uh, but he, he was sure dead set in his innocence. And he would kind of painted himself into a corner where we couldn't use him on the stand. There's no way we could put him on the stand because um, you didn't ever know what he was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew he was going to say he didn't do these, but, but besides that, I don't know what else he would have said. While
1: Ronald might not have been the type of person a defense attorney would feel comfortable putting on the stand, conversely, Lisa, his daughter was honest to a fault. So honest, she would talk to the investigators in hopes of supporting her father once they began focusing on Ronald and share a very candid description of him.
3: He did mention to me at one point before the uh, investigation came you know, full on on him, was that he felt like they were going to try to put this on him and i remember saying to him why do you think that and he says it's the way they're they're questioning me is what's making me think that they think i'm the person and i go well that's crazy and that's scary and he didn't say anything he just shook his head up and down and he just put it you know out there and so At one point, and at one point, honestly, because of that statement, I decided that I wanted, I was hungry. I decided to call Detective Ford so he could pay for my lunch. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. And I figured, you know, I could get some information out of him as to where this was going. So, uh, Detective Ford comes to uh, my job and picks me up, and we go to Taco Bueno. Um, You know, it it could, and I guess it was my choice uh, to go there. And uh, we go to Taco Bueno, and we're sitting and we're talking, and I'm trying to get information out of him, and he's trying to get information out of me. And I start telling him things as a child, things that my parents would fight about, you know, like for one, my mom used to say, my dad's an habitual liar. So I repeated that. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And it's awful when I think about it, but I said it. I now am telling him things that like, you know, oh, my dad's such a good, you know, he's such a good, he's a good person. You know, he has champagne taste in a beer pocket. And it seemed like from that point on, everything I said was just getting worse and worse. Yeah, it was just so, um, I couldn't backpedal it enough. And I couldn't change it. And I would say, oh, my dad, he's, you know, he'd make somebody a great wife because he loved to cook and he loved to clean. And, and you, know, I, you know, I was just telling him all this stuff about my father. And so I guess Detective Ford thought that was very interesting. So he went back. Obviously, he spoke about our conversation And then called me and wanted to have another uh, visit with me.
1: Lisa's candor with police echoed how Ronald behaved when first asked to give a statement.
3: Matter of fact, my grandfather, when my dad was being approached to come down to the police department to give a statement, my dad called my grandfather to let him know. And my grandfather's exact words were, Ron, if you didn't do it, you got nothing to worry about. You don't need a lawyer. Just go and talk to the police.
1: Consider the story from the police's perspective. Ronald made these strange twilight visits to the house, gave a statement about never being in the utility room, and then changed his statement, and his daughter told investigators he was a liar. Not helping matters further, Ronald was known to police for a few slightly more serious situations. According to an article in Dallas Magazine, in 1983, A police report was filed about an incident in which Ronald's second wife was concerned for him, seeing blood on the window and door of her apartment. Also according to Dallas Magazine, Ronald's marriage to his second wife was troubled. The responding officer reported finding Ronald, the blood was his. He had injured himself, breaking a window to get in, and was, according to the report, intoxicated and depressed, and had a knife. The officer and Ronald got into a physical altercation, in which Ronald expressed, according to the responding officer, that he wanted to die and the officer was going to kill him. Ronald would ultimately only be charged with criminal trespassing. Also, according to Dallas Magazine, in another incident in 1984, Ronald was charged with burglary after being found inside a restaurant when an alarm went off. Ronald told the police the owner had given him the key and asked him to burn the restaurant down to collect on the insurance money. Lisa maintains Ronald was only asked to vandalize the restaurant, not burn it. Either way, obviously it didn't create a strong impression of Ronald to the police. But does either incident suggest the type of person capable of committing three brutal, methodical murders of teenagers? Regardless, in order to focus on Ronald as the primary suspect, investigators first had to clear another suspect, someone who had made a very concerning statement to his girlfriend at the time, according to her. We're going to refer to him as Eric and her as Rebecca. Rebecca's claim was known to the police.
7: Okay. At the time the crime took place, I was, uh, at home looking for my boyfriend who was Eric and not able to co- to locate him that night. Um, I assumed he was with, um, Danielle. So I had called her all night long on the answering machine telling her, uh, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kick you. Whatever. Anyway. So the next morning I was woke up by the Arlington police department at my door. Of course they had already found the bodies and, <clears throat> came to me like what I didn't know what had happened at that point he was he has been with Danielle before we were together but hindsight now that I know he was actually seeing her at the same time Eric (laughs) did finally get in touch with me I don't remember if it was before that night I think it might have been before I would we would very late because we were up doing all that that he told me, I said, where have you been? What have you been doing? Where, you know, have you been with her? Blah, 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 blah. I said, no, but I'm just gonna tell you, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to worry about that anymore. I was like, what do you mean I don't have to worry about that anymore? Cause he'd broken up with her and got married, I don't know, whatever. And so he was just real adamant about that. And so then when the police showed up and said what happened, I didn't doubt for a minute that he did it because I know him and he's got, the background on him is, Him and his family and a few friends were very, um, I don't know how to explain it, very rough. Their favorite game to play was to go out to the park and play war games, like in the trees, hunt each other down and I don't know what else. So it didn't surprise me at all. But why would he say to me not to worry about it anymore? What, What does that mean? And he was real adamant after that, that he didn't do it. Of course, he's adamant after that he didn't do it. But in the thick of the, the the sun comes up the next morning, what he told me was, I didn't have to worry about it anymore. And he didn't say why. And then I found out and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I have a thing, bad boys just kind of, you know, I still haven't shook that one. Yeah. <laughs> but this was a different thing. He was like, he, he his nickname was Wolf. He was just pretty demented. and. I think what happened was Eric got angry, went over there, found a boy there, and got jealous. He was an extremely jealous person. He's just weird how, like, it had to have been extreme jealousy and something happened in an accident or, and then it had, it escalated. And then at that escalation, it had to become what it was. Because I just don't see Eric, as weird as he was, for him to go into a home and kill three people alone out of anger. I was on the first load up to my grandparents' house in Lorena, Texas, and from there I went to a girl's home. It scared the hell out of my mom, which I'm a mother now and I think, oh my God, yeah. I did come back to testify. I wanna say while I was back to testify, I was with a friend at someone's apartment, I don't even remember where, and and Eric showed up. And kind of just tackled me in the closet. And he was like, "Do you really think I did that, dude?" Because word had gotten out at that point that I was saying what I would, what I knew. And uh, I said, "Yeah, absolutely, I, I do, I do." And he just held me down. And he was like, "He was real weird. Like, like his eyes would roll back in his head. And he was just real deep. Dem- just I don't know if he thought that was cool or if that was really that way or what. But I don't think I'm the only one that he told that to." And now that I've seen crime scene photos and I've seen the the lay of the land, whatever, I'm just, I'm really leaning towards he couldn't do that on his own. And if he didn't do that on his own, then I know who helped him.
1: Rebecca's referring to a friend of Eric's with a criminal record who would later die by suicide. Eric was ultimately dismissed as a suspect by police.
7: I never understood that. I never understood that. They did not want me to testify at all. So even even when I was called to testify, the court was very short. I think they'd already decided. It just doesn't make sense. Two and two is four, and then two and zero. is There's nothing there. Why would Treboli wanna kill these girls? And how the hell did he do it by himself? That's, do you think Renee just stood in the bathroom and waited on her, her turn? Not, don't make no
6: sense.
1: This is Detective Ford's position on this suspect and why the police didn't look further into him.
6: He had an alibi, you know, he's babysitting his little brother. Uh, we confirmed that the best, best we could. Uh, he had an injury on his, on his hand that uh, we verified through a plastic surgeon that that injury occurred like weeks before. Uh, there was just nothing that connected him to the crime scene at Miguel Lane. Uh, sure, he was acquainted with the girls, but uh, teenage girls, uh, they were acquainted with lots of people from school and church and, you know, just like normal teenagers. Remember, though, Ronald Trimboli had an
1: alibi, too, in a statement from his wife. But in that situation, the police felt the alibi was not enough. And just like Ronald, Eric was already known to police. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, police had previously questioned Eric about a double homicide in a nearby park. He had been arrested in jail at one point for carrying a concealed knife, and there are police records of rumors that Eric had been overheard talking about cutting someone's throat. We also reviewed court documents showing Eric would later be charged with attempted murder in 1987 and sexual assault of two different minors, both in 1986, but he had not yet been charged with these crimes at the time of this case. We should also note, as reported in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, these
6: charges were ultimately dismissed. Eric only pled guilty to burglary of a vehicle. I'm not saying he was an angel. uh, There was just no physical evidence or or any uh, circumstantial evidence to connect him to the Miguel Lane cases. But it turns out, Eric was not the only alternative suspect with a
1: demonstrable history of violence and a documented antagonistic relationship with at least one of the victims. There was someone else. Someone that victim John Bradley was afraid was going to murder him, Dennis Mason. We reviewed his criminal record which includes charges of aggravated assault, aggravated use of a deadly weapon, and a murder charge in 1993. To give you a sense of Dennis Mason, here's a series of quotes from an Arlington Police Department offense report. This is a report about Dennis Mason stabbing someone in a trailer park. But in that report, one section notes, Detective Ford is familiar with Dennis Wayne Mason, having worked murder number 930049206 in which Dennis Mason stabbed Guy Barr Coley multiple times in the chest and the back with a knife after Coley and Mason argued about changing the radio station on the stereo. Coley died at the scene. A Tarrant County jury found Mason not guilty, referenced self-defense. Regarding this different stabbing in question, where the victim survived, the man who reported it would later note that Dennis Mason's girlfriend called him and warned him if he caused Mason any trouble Mason would quote, "Come back and finish the job." Even back then, in the 1980s, Dennis was already a name brought up regarding
6: another murder of a man named Jimmy McCourt. John Bradley had already uh, been interviewed by a Middle detective at that time, Detective Lake, and had given Detective Lake a statement uh, in which John Bradley uh, had overheard some conversation, some hearsay conversation about several individuals. Uh, and this this conversation indicated that perhaps uh, one of the individuals or more than one of the individuals knew something about who killed uh, Jimmy McCork, the Middle Othian victim. So Detective Lake uh, contacted the Arlington Police Department and, and provided his information. And I think as well, there were some associates of uh, John Bradley that we talked to who told, gave us the same information. At any rate, we knew that that was one particular lead we needed to investigate. According to the Fort
1: Worth Star-Telegram, Dennis Mason called a friend of McCourt's the day of the murders and said, quote, John Bradley is dead, end quote. More than an hour before John Bradley's body was discovered and two hours before Bradley was identified on the radio as a victim. Nonetheless, Dennis Mason, was ultimately dropped as a suspect as well.
6: I spent a great deal of time on that and I contacted a number of those persons. And uh, the bottom line is is that there was no one that that I could find or Detective Blake could find or any of the rest of us could find that had any specific information about uh, who killed Jimmy McQuirk or uh, if that same person killed John Bradley. So there was never any evidence, there was never any circumstantial evidence or any physical evidence, or any direct statements uh, that would uh, have led us to believe that the same person that killed Jimmy McQuirk uh, killed John Bradley, or that would have led any of us to the conclusion that there was enough evidence to file charges on anyone for killing Jimmy McQuirk. And that's why there was never any arrest made on that. I mean, uh, all the information was primarily just hearsay and double hearsay and uh, dope talk, rabbit trails, as we like to call it. I mean, we'll follow the lead as far as it goes, but oftentimes we would be told by one person that, hey, so-and-so told me that so-and-so killed Jimmy. So we would go to that person, that person say, well, I never said that. I just said that I wonder if so-and-so did it because the two of them had an argument one time. And so we would follow each and every one of these leads to its logical conclusion. We wouldn't just form an opinion somewhere down the line that it's not related and just stop. I mean, there again, we we had all this manpower to work with and, and so that's what we were gonna do is to properly use it. But at some point in time, if we followed up all of those leads, uh, for example, on the uh, Middle Oathian case, and they're all dead-ended. Uh, they're all just hearsay and, and double hearsay, and there's no relationship between that and, and uh, the uh, triple murder that we're investigating. Well, at some point in time, the decision needs to be made just to stop following in that direction, spend the manpower on something else. I also asked Hugh Atwell about the process of investigating and
1: eliminating alternate suspects.
4: We had uh, multiple investigators that worked on this case twenty four seven constantly until uh, we got it to, to a point where we can file it, and uh, and then many many hours after that, working with the DA's office, preparing the uh, the case for the grand jury and other things, and making sure that all the t's were crossed and. And, and that type of thing. So, no, uh, sometimes that's hard to do, is to run down all these little fragments that may or may not have a thing to do with the case. But you never know where they're going to lead unless you uh, follow those leads. And it just, a lot of it is just wearing out shoe leather. Whenever you have a major crime like this, and within the uh, scope of all of these people that knew these people, that knew somebody, that knew somebody, that knew somebody, uh, you just get all kinds of things being said. And as far as I know, it's the first, it's first time we ever used it at our department. Um, computers were fairly new. And the, there used to be an old uh, program called DBase. Um, you, you may have a hard time even imagining that they're really uh, – <laughs> we, we didn't have spreadsheets back then. So you, you kind of created a spreadsheet. And I had one investigator, bless his heart, um, and he's really the one that got us on the trend bully by doing nothing more, we entered every lead into a database and we had several columns broken out on what that lead was, who it was and what they said and who they mentioned. And then, and there would be another line item if there was a name mentioned. And so, uh, just used back then, of course, is rudimentary just by sorting, you know, sorting all these different columns, then you can start looking and seeing, okay. Here's some commonality. Here's something. This this guy's name has come up five times. Uh, so with the, the hundreds and hundreds of leads that you start getting that are coming in from all different directions, uh, from the officers on the street everywhere, we we were able to um, organize those and sort those using some of the most rudimentary computers skills that you could have on a on a computer that. We had access, you know, the kind of computer that we had access to. But just using us. today, you know, a, a, a seven-year-old would look at the DBase program. So that sure is backward, but that's all we had at the time. And um, Ron Tramboli's name, you know, started stacking up. You know, when you start sorting these uh, sorting these names out and doing searches, uh, that got us to, to start looking at him first, anyway.
1: But police felt strongly enough about Dennis Mason as an alternate suspect to try and get Dennis Mason's fingerprints. In trial transcripts from the first trial, Ronald Trimboli's attorney, Carl Mallory, discusses how Bradley had told the Midlothian Police Department that he was going to be murdered, and he had told at least five other people he would be murdered. Mallory notes that police set up an elaborate device to attempt to use subterfuge to get the Prince of Mason surrounded a bar out there, but they got there too late, and they were going to use a traffic stop to get Mason in to get his palm prints and his fingerprints, but it was dropped, as Detective Ford said, and as Mallory echoes in trial transcripts. Now you might ask, wasn't the primary motive of this crime sexual, as Detective Ford theorized previously? Could it have been a drug feud instead? What would suggest that it could be? Well, When medical examiners performed the autopsy on John Bradley, they found a very high dose of cocaine in his
0: system, enough to kill a non-chronic user. I lived a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and I do mean just that. Christian people always came to me and tried to tell me that there is a better life. I called them liars because they couldn't prove to me that what they said was true. I guess because I would not listen. John Bradley wrote that. Why was it that this troubled young man came to be living with Joanne Lemieux and her two daughters? Could it have been just a coincidence that John Bradley was invited to stay with the family, and two days later, he and Renee and Danielle were murdered? And why were there so many frightening people connected in some way to two normal teenage girls? On the next episode, the police closed their net around Ronald Trimboli and the figurative trials of his chaotic life become literal trials in a court of law. That's next time. In the Blood is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Lead reported and written by Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins. Original music by Darlas Gonzalez. Hosted by Ben McKenzie. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review in Apple
2: Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.